Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you online watching or listening, good morning to you also. We continue in the book of Acts as we study the first Christians, their lives, and the ministry that was involved along with their lives. Acts chapter 17. We will consider verses 16 through 21, but we will stand and read verses... I got that wrong. I got to warm up a little bit. <laughs> we'll take verses 10 through 21 in our exposition, but we'll read verses 16 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, please stand. And if you're visiting, don't worry, it gets worse. <laughs> Beginning at verse 16 through 21, Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Please be seated. Well, he had been chased out of Thessalonica. In verse 10, we'll pick that up in a moment. But this morning's message is entitled, Skilled Unbelievers. Last week, we considered skilled believers, and it just worked out that way. A man is born an unbeliever, all Humans are born unbelievers until born again and unless born again. Uh, But until that time, if they remain in an unbelieving state, as time goes by, they become more skilled at being an unbeliever. And these are things we face. This is what Paul was facing. Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and and in sin my mother conceived me. We are born with a nature that is... Subject to disobeying God. Romans 7:18, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, and the flesh is that part of us in this context, that part of us that is against God. It's natural, it's the sinful part. He continues while well, reading the whole thing in context, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to do That is really a tough time. Can we go to a commercial? (laughs) For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And so a person can be skilled in meaningless practices in life if that's what they give themselves to. You reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you reap what uh, the flesh has to offer you. And this is, of course, one reason why we Christians try to spend so much time in the Scripture and obeying the Lord and becoming better at serving Christ, if we can. Christ-likeness is what we are after. 
If we look at verse 21 again, just to, again, be reminded, these unbelievers were skilled at being unbelievers. There in verse 17, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Well, this is important to me as a Christian because I want to know how Paul dealt with these things. That's why these lessons are here. These men had been without truth about the true God. They had plenty of things about the fictitious gods that were made up. Uh, and it, was, it, it didn't serve them well. It did nothing for them. They would have been just the way they were had they not had these foreign or fake gods. To be good at life without Christ is to fail at life. And when Peter said to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of life. You have them. No one else has got them. That was true when Peter spoke it. And it's true forever. Unfortunately, uh, many Christians don't really believe that. They believe that if you need to, if you need how to go through life, you've got to go somewhere else other than the Word of God and the people of God. And that, that is unfortunate. Do believers, or I'll put it this way, do unbelievers believe that they are automatically ready to face God? Well, they're all tangled, all mixed up. They're entangled in the sin that they're born with. What what, what are we going to do about that? Well, that's where we come in, of course. That's why we study the Word of God. To be built up in Christ, to be more Christ-like, to face our own sin, and to keep it in check as best we can, and to be used by God to preach the truth to those lost souls around us, and that's what we find Paul doing. So we look now at verse 10 of Acts chapter 17. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When he arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And so he's chased out of Thessalonica, as he was chased out of Philippi before that. He will also be chased out of Berea. He will leave Athens and get to Corinth, but that comes later. And so here's another escape from another satanic attempt to harm him. Satan is is instigating unbelievers, and they have become a violent threat. Looking back at chapter 9 of the book of Acts, then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. That records his escape from Damascus. My point is that Paul spent his life preaching and avoiding death or beatings in Christ. This wasn't the first time he had to escape. And we hear nothing of the miracles and outward signs in the city he just left, Thessalonica. We hear of the Holy Spirit at work there. That's going to be the case here at at Berea also, where he has just arrived. The power of the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of the people at Thessalonica and in Berea through the preaching of the words, the word of Christ, the word of the Bible. When Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. His effective ministry, that efficacious ministry in Thessalonica and Berea, was a product of him preaching the word, but also his testimony. 
his lifestyle, how he carried himself, how he himself attempted, at, at the very least, to practice what he preached, the miracle of assurance. And it is a miracle to know that God has got me, that the grace of God is freely given, and it is not given so that I can doubt it, but that I can embrace it, and that allows God to use me more. Uh, this work in these two cities was not so much outward as it was inward. Uh, the people were moved not by signs and wonders, but by truth. And that is the dominant way today that we reach the people with the gospel. You'll find more people that will say, I preached to them and they received it. And you will find someone say, well, I did a miracle and they received Christ. It's, it's not the dominant way any longer. Uh, faith by reason from Scripture. And again, First Thessalonians. And this background, this background is very much part of the story. Because when we don't have the background, we say, well, we wish we had a little bit more information. Well, we've got some here from Thessalonica. Even though, again, we're in Berea now, but that city that he just left, he's going to write them, these letters we have. He says, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. I wish that would be said about me. Because of you, the word of God has sounded forth. You didn't bury your lamp. You didn't put it under a bushel. But you let your light shine before men that your father would be glorified. And we don't have to do this in an ostentatious way. We're very cool-headed and calm about the whole thing, poised. He says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place where your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. The testimony of these newborn Christians in Thessalonica was spreading to people. What do Christians, what do people say after you've left the room? Yeesh. Man, I thought they'd never leave. Talk about loveless or twisted up or self-centered or something else. Instead of, boy, that was, that was just really great what the person was saying or the, what they do. Uh, you say, well, this puts a lot of pressure on me. So that's what life is. Uh, life is all sorts of pressures. If you focus on the pressures, you won't get it done. But if you focus on the Lord, you will overcome. He says, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. It says here in verse 10. I traveled about 50 or 45, 50 miles, about a three-day walk from Thessalonica to Berea. And he goes to the synagogue, as was his style, as was an effective style of his ministry. Can't do that today. <laughs> not easily. Uh, he writes to the Romans years later, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And here we see it in action. It's a proper course of, of, of ministry of how, in those days to first go to the Jews. And we've discussed that in previous sessions. And if I am repeating verses from other sessions, I do not apologize. Those verses just don't grow old. There's always something. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It is the power of God to overcome lies out of hell. And there's nothing else that can do it. There's nothing else that you'll ever find that can overcome the lies that are straight out of hell against the character, the person, the truths, the commandments of God. You have to come to the Bible. And uh, there is, this is where Paul was trying to bring them. Verse 11, 
these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Well, this is a kingpin verse. And you would think, and I'll stand and read moments before, that this verse would have been one of uh, part of it because it's such an outstanding verse. But uh, that's not the whole story. And there's more to other things. And the, the, the meaning to this verse is on the surface. You can read this and you know just what it means. You don't really need someone to explain it to you. It comes right out. But I'm going to explain it anyway. <laughs> now when it says these were no, more fair-minded or noble in the King, old King James, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. He's talking about the Thessalonian Jews, or attendees of the synagogue in Thessalonica. He's not talking about the Jews in Thessalonica who did believe the preaching. And that distinction is important because he's not saying there's a competition, you know, these are better Jews over here than there. He's just saying the synagogue in Thessalonica gave him great opposition and chased him out of the city though there were Jewish believers as a result of his preaching. He gets to Berea, and these Jewish who became, these Jews who became believers, they became believers because they searched the scriptures. And that is critical for whether you're Jewish or not. It's for everyone. These um, Jews heard what Paul had to say about the Messiah from their Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, it was their covenant, and they went and checked it. They, they considered the Scripture the final authority on what God was, was doing and matters of life. And as genuine believers, they searched the Scriptures, and this should be the case with genuine script, uh, believers to this day. This should be the case with anybody who hears the Gospel. Well, let me see that in the Bible, what the Bible has to say about it. They would look up Paul's Old Testament teachings, his prophecies, and his types. Now, I mentioned types last session. The Old Testament types in the Bible are events or persons or facts that correspond with a New Testament person event or fact. And to give you two examples, Isaac being offered up by his father, Abraham, is a type of the father offering up his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for us. Uh, that the heart of the father uh, to part with the son on, on, on behalf of the Godhead and, and humanity as it expands, the type expands. The type only captures a, a part of it and then the truth begins to expand. So Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Lot had to be extracted from Sodom and Gomorrah before the judgment came. And this is a type of the rapture of the church which precedes, uh, immediately precedes the great tribulation period. The believers have to be extracted before the judgment comes. And so these are types. And they're all over the Old Testament. Uh, and Paul would have taken types from that Old Testament and said, this is speaking of the Messiah, because look at his life. Look what happened. Uh, here it is in the Old Testament. He would not only do types, of course, prophecies, and, and just direct teachings also. 
the types make it interesting. They cause the imagination to work in, in its proper form, not creating, up imagine, creating imaginary things, but to have the imagination begin to think it through. Uh, very effective to this day. Verse 12, therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women, as well as men. So he's very effective in the church at Berea amongst the Jews and the Gentile converts to Judaism because when they heard him preach, they went and checked it out. Well, isn't that one reason why we bring our, our Bibles to church? So that we can get our head in it too. We're not just being preached down to. We're all part of this experience of God's word. What did they believe? Well, the same thing he preached in the other synagogues. The same thing he preached to the women in Philippi by the river. The same thing he preached in Thessalonica. The same thing he's preaching here. Because he doesn't have to come up with new things. He has to give them fresh experiences in the existing things. Uh, it is a mistake to always crave something new. That's having your ears tickled. Ooh, And that's one of the problems that he's going to face here. Amongst these, uh, the intelligentsia in Athens, but he's not there yet. So both experienced, the Jews in Thessalonica who did not believe, the Jews in Berea who did, they, they both experienced the same teachings, like the story of the outlaws on the cross. They both experienced the same things, made the, had the same observations, but they came up with drastically different conclusions. It's your call, Christless man. You can either listen and examine it through reason and believe, or you can reject it. It is, it is up to you. But if you're going to reject it, may it not be because you are intellectually dishonest, which I think you have to be. I think you have to lie to yourself to reject the gospel message. I think because it, it, it forces you to face who you really are. The gospel message comes out and say, you're messed up before God. You are a sinner. You break his commandments and there's no escape. That's it. You are dirty unless you submit to Christ. All our righteousness, filthy rags. You know, if I say, if I say you're dirty, so that's a bit harsh. Well, that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't have any kindness towards sin. It doesn't wink at it. It confronts it. And it's very difficult for some human beings to have that happen to them. Who likes criticism? Raise your hand. I love, well, I don't mean the giving. I mean, who likes being criticized for anything? Years ago, I, I, saw, I was a, an inspector in construction industry, and I would inspect all, welds, welding, you know. And those welders in that particular union were very proud of their work. They took a lot of pride in it. And if you joked about, who did this? Oh, man, you better get ready, because they did not fool around. And, uh, you know, when I use these stories, I forget the, why I was even bringing them up. I'm just enjoying it. I'm seeing the faces, and, and the experience is, is real again. But the criticism, you know, they didn't want that criticism. They worked too hard for you to come up and say, this is a fail. So I learned not to joke with them about their wells. Holding me off the edge of a 40-story building was part of the incentive that they did not. Anyway, these Bereans leave us an example.
And not only believers, they leave the Christianity example. If you're going to be guarded against heresy coming from a pulpit or a radio program or wherever else you go, if you're going to be guarded against that, you're going to have to search the scriptures. You have no choice if you, if you want to be protected. Do diligence, inve- investigate, and then act on your findings. Pull the trigger on your choice. Do something with it. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Well, before I comment on verse 13, I have to go back and add. Verse 12, as a kingpin verse, you you could take a whole morning session and preach on it. But uh, I just wanted to give the overview of the importance of searching the scriptures to see if things are true or not, because the scripture is where the, the, is the foundation of our truth. Now, coming back to verse 13, uh, the spirit of Antichrist, hard at work, sending out his workers, again, some 40 miles, three days journey from Thessalonica to Berea, just at the word that, hey, Paul left here, And he's doing the same thing in Berea that he did here. He's making converts. Well, Satan wasn't going to take that lying down. The devil hates all human beings. The devil hated Hitler and Stalin and all the rest of the evil people. He hates them too. He just finds them useful to him. He hates the good and the bad alike. And the world doesn't know this. And they won't stumble into it. It's up to us to engage them, to tell them. And we'll come to that when we get to some of the differences, and it doesn't take much, between street evangelism and face-to-face, person-to-person Christianity. Uh, With that coming attraction, you can see which side I lean on. Well, uh, they, again, they, they hated Paul preaching. They hated the success of it. And they did all of this without even caring to look in their Bibles to see if he was right or not. And that's why Luke put verse 12 in, the search of the scriptures, to verify it. And this, this is a repeated story uh, to this day, even in Christian circles. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So they're going to sail him away to Athens. Jesus said in Matthew 10, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another city. There's a time to, to, to run and not just be, you know, a, a, a pincushion or a punching bag for the devil. I'm sure Paul was saying, no, I'll stay and trust the Lord. And others were saying, listen, Paul, we, you'll, do, you'll be more effective for the kingdom if you can speak to people. And, and not just die or just spend all of your time recovering from your beatings. If you want to be effective in the gospel, you, we've got to protect you. Now, Titus and Luke, where are they? Because they were part of Paul's entourage earlier. Well, they're still back in Philippi. The, the church there, that fledgling church, needed leadership. And it, the story reads, uh, highly likely, that's where they are Paul will, and Titus will rejoin later. And Paul was in the habit of dispatching men. At some point we may cover that, how many men he would send here and send there. There's still other uh, 
and uh, able men that will be drawn to him. And we don't hear a peep about them. Huh, go back there? They just seem to just be off and running, with the exception of Apollos, who's, who's, a, who's an eloquent, eloquent speaker of the truth. He's going to push back a little bit, and it's very subtle. And so is Paul's satire. When Paul says, oh, he'll come when it's convenient. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that later, not this morning. Uh, but here are Silas and Timothy. As Paul left Titus and Luke and Philippi, he leaves Silas and Timothy and Berea. And when he gets about 300 miles to Athens, when he gets there, he's going to send for these men. He can't do without them. But he is careful to leave leadership because he understands if there is no shepherd, the flock will be devoured. And in the sense of the heresies will come in, the false teachings will come in. And one of the proofs of this is John's letters dealing with Gnosticism that had invaded Christianity. Verse 15, and, and now it's gone. we got other problems. But anyway, verse 15, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And so there you go. Uh, these guys that conducted Paul, they were trustworthy and able men, also protecting him physically, uh, they arrive in Athens together. And when he gets to Athens, he's going to send back to Berea for Silas and Timothy to come with him with all speed. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are names left out. We know, because no, it tells us right here in verse 15, that there were those who, can, who were with him, but they're not named. So he must have had a good amount of men attracted to him to serve Jesus Christ by serving Paul. Uh, and it's just, as we go through the New Testament, it just, is a, it to me, is very beautiful. Anyway, blessed with trustworthy and able men, he dispatches a courier to Berea to bring them to him, to catch up. They don't catch, catch up till he gets uh, you know, further uh, in, into to Corinth, it, se- it seems. Anyway, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. That's in the Bible. That's in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And it talks about all the warriors that came out to say, David is king. It says, you know, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. Uh, They would not flee and run when there was pressure on them. They were brave and they were disciplined. Uh, And you can't do... What can you do with people who are not stout-hearted and can't keep ranks? You can keep looking for those who are stout-hearted and can keep, that's about it. Don't devalue that. Ask yourself, am I, which, who am I? That's what the Bible is. One of the reasons behind personal devotion time is you get to look at these stories and you say, who am I in this story? Am, am I a Martha? Am I a Mary? Am I a Paul? Am I behaving like Peter? You know, get behind me, Lord. You know, say it's not so. You're not going to the cross because you really don't understand what's going on. You say these kind of things. Uh, Very valuable lessons here. Anyway, he's leaving Macedonia to Greece, though the Macedonians were Greek, almost 400 miles. Uh, If if he would walking it, the ship would make it a little faster. Athens, that ancient city. Well, we need to open that up a little bit because it's the cradle of Western thought. That's where Western thought was really uh, systematically put together. 
And it is, you know, the Romans gobbled it up. Uh, the Romans came along and they, they, they were so impressed with the Grecian culture, they took, uh, you know, Zeus and they made him Jupiter. And they would just take the gods of the, and, get, and give them Roman names. But it was, in their mind, they were showing honor, deference to the Greeks. Athens became the school of Greece and Greece the school of the world. And that is a fact. And to this day, uh, their philosophers are often quoted and have an impact on, on our, our law students would, would certainly uh, be looking to how they uh, conducted business in those days also. It was the city of Socrates and Plato. It was the adopted city of men like Aristotle. Uh, it's past its glory day here and uh, 400 years earlier it was really just humming along. It's not so much now, but it is still a college town. It is still a, 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 a big player in the world of academia of that, of that ancient world. Epicurus, who we're going to come to in a moment, he also had made Athens his home. The Parthenon was there, that giant temple to Athena, uh, the Mount, Mount Olympus, you know, there's a, there's a big mountain there, and that's where the gods lived. And it was this jambalaya of man-made gods. In fact, one philosopher of the ancient world said it is easier to find a god than it is a man in Athens. Well, Paul's going to come across that. I think Hinduism has picked that up. Is it? You know, everything is a god there, there too. So it's, not, it's something that Satan can pull off in other parts of the world. Western philosophy begins and ends with the question. You get into Western philosophy, what is life? And you've got all this guesswork about it. That's what philosophy is. Human philosophy is just guessing at answers. Christianity comes along and it answers those questions. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to know what life is? It's me. Because there is no life without me. And wherever you go in life, I'm present. Now, I can either be with you or I can be against you. Or maybe you can say you can either be with me or you can be for me. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. I, I would say that, that begins to open up a lot of answers about life. When Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's life all about? What is my purpose here? Well, there's Paul saying, I'll tell you what my purpose is. It's, to, it's Christ. It's Jesus Christ. To serve him. Athens it attracted those considered intellectuals. The intelligentsia. And again, not a slight on smart people at all. But you can be smart and dumb at the very same time. Or you can be smart and smart. And the people that, uh, that I like <laughs> are the smart ones. Uh, anyway, you can be considered intelligent and a, a spiritual, you know, spiritually ignorant at the same time. There is something very suggestive about this, these two uh, words, Greek ruins. You know, you see, you know what? There's a connection there between the cradle of Western philosophy and the city, the ancient city where that these philosophies come from, are in ruins. Uh, Athens attracted, you know, the people that wanted to be known as deep thinkers, and. Uh, Without ever coming to this conclusion, it seems that mere intellect is no guarantee of perfection. Any more than simply knowing your Bible is a guarantee you're walking with Christ. 
You can know your scripture, you can know your Bible, and be out of communion with God. Jesus even said, you know, there'll be those that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Which means, didn't we speak the word of God in your name? Didn't we do miracles? Who's comfortable reading that verse? You read and say, is it I? Do I, you know, let a man examine himself. We, we as Christians, we do this because we know we have a loving examiner over our examinations. And we're not insecure. And insecure people, may they become a problem. Because you can't, you know, they just, there's trouble all the time. You didn't like my new shirt. Well, I didn't like the old one either, but I didn't say anything. So, you know, they got to have attention. They got to be validated. And uh, to, to be able to say, you know, Christ, he is my judge. Is that not what the name Daniel means? God is my judge. It doesn't, it's not rude, like, God's my judge, not you. It's just, it's just I'm comfortable with God being God over my life. And I want to take some of that and, and use it so that I'm not a person that's abrasive. There are times we have to be abrasive. Well, the other side is going to say you're abrasive because you just can't do anything right to, for them. But that's not our intention. So it's not enough to be intelligent. It's not enough to know the Bible. It's not enough to have oxygen. It's not enough to have food and water. And shelter. There are other things. There's a lot of things we need to function properly. And so one can be knowledgeable about God's creation without knowing the God of crea- uh, that created everything. This is secular scientists of this way. They study God's creation. They refuse to say it's his. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, verse 13 is what I'm going to quote. Verse 14 is the popular one. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are... Foolishness to him. But that's not the verse we're going to look at. Verse 13, the preceding verse. Paul says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Boy, what a mouthful. He's saying we've got God in us. And when he is active, things get done. He is inactive, when we're not cooperating with him. But he is active, even if we're enduring pain and suffering and confusion, whatever troubles we're facing, and we're submitting to God in the midst of them, God is active, very active in that. So back to this, uh, the city that he is in. He's ministering to people who are know-it-alls. And they would put that on their resume, know-it-all. We'll come any you come back to this. So the again, just to clarify, the essence of human philosophy is human opinion based on human observation. That's philosophy. By itself, that's not enough to be right with God. The essence of faith in Christ is revelation, is God showing man. How he is supposed to. It's not in man to govern himself, the Bible says. He just can't do it. And even when God is doing it, it's still a problem because of that thing called the curse, the fall of man. And to this day, the essence of true faith is the revelation of God through the scriptures on the life. And the world hates this. And we're supposed to help them understand so that they can make a fair choice. Verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him 
when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And this is why I chose to read this during our standing and reading over verse 12, which is, again, a kingpin verse, uh, more noble-minded than those of Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures. This one, uh, for this morning, because you can come preach the same chapter again and pick a different verse. There's so many points that stand out. And here, while he's waiting, his spirit is provoked within him. His heart is breaking. Over what? The place is infested with idols. How many cities can you say this about on the planet? How many can you say this about in America? And the number is increasing. It's like a, a, a meter of how many places that are given to idols. They're just totally owned by Satan. It's his territory. Well, he could not sit idle in the presence of all of these idols. I know, that's pretty clever, because you have a clever pastor. It's just, you know, God felt that you people were good enough to get me. Okay, that's totally not true, but it's, that's what makes it so funny, right? It's like, oh, get out of here. That's, I feel nauseous now. Anyway, what a statement. The city was given over to idols. Well, so are our cities. There's no reason to go run and hide. What did Paul do about it? Well, he was provoked. He had to do something he felt. Now, I think he learned a lesson here in Athens because he doesn't repeat this again. He goes back to his old school method of the synagogues. He goes to the synagogues here too, but he, he goes outside. So with all these brilliant minds, these renowned philosophers, they had the wrong gods. They couldn't figure God out. You can't. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The best they could do was make up gods and fail to answer life's great questions. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Well, we know because we have the book of Genesis. Jeremiah writing to Jewish people who were behaving this way. Now, these Athenians knew nothing about Jeremiah. What, probably, they may have had some knowledge. He would have been mixed into the pot with other book writers. But Jeremiah says about the Jews, they have, they have turned to me the back. In other words, they turned their back to, to God. And not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. These are the kind of verses you write down. And if you can't remember them, you take them, and if uh, you get into a conversation with an unbeliever, you can say, let me just read you something from the Bible, because you ain't going to read the Bible. So I'm going to read something to you. And you could talk about just that verse in its New Testament context. Aristotle, one of their heroes, he claimed philosophy was the science of truth. Well, that's a lie. I mean, claim whatever you want to claim. How are you going to back it up? Human philosophy is the science of human guessing at answers about people, about life. And the intelligentsia that Paul was facing, they may insist that they are the custodians and there's no knowledge unless they approve of it. They're going to insist on that all they want. It doesn't make it true. And they were insisting on it. When he, when he was called to the Aragopagus, they, they were saying, hey, tell us what you're doing, you little seed picker. Yeah, they, they got a little snarky with him. Secular science 
It asks this question, where did man come from? Well, it depends. <laughs> I just came out of my office a little while ago. <laughs> anyway, we're back to <laughs> Philosophy asks the question, why am I here? Science says, where did man come from? Philosophy says, why am I here? Psychology says, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Only the Bible answers. By answering the last one, what's wrong with you, the Bible begins to answer the others too. It tells you why you messed up, where you came from, and where you can go. Your call. I hope this is not boring to you. It's, it's, it's not to me, and I'm a little selfish and talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> Greek civilization, spiritually bankrupt. Having no knowledge of salvation. And we, we covered this. The salvation was a foreign concept as we know it, and as the Romans and Gre Greeks practiced it, it was foreign. So you say, okay, pastor, that's kind of boring to me. That's ancient history. No, it's not. It's the same way today. You find people that have no concept of salvation. And if they did, they wouldn't be vainly using the Lord Jesus' name. They would understand that to use the name of Jesus in vain is to use the name of God in vain. And this is a violation of the Ten Commandments. It is a sin. And that's, again, if, if man could figure it out, who needs us? As beat up as we are, God says, I need you, and I want you. I've set it up this way. And if you can stop thinking about yourself so much and think more about me, we can get more done. Now, we can't stop thinking about ourselves entirely. That would be foolish. But we can, we can dim it down some. They had no knowledge of salvation. They discovered many truths, but they did not discover the truth. They had 800 years of Greek mythology, and then they had another 500 years of philosophy with that. God gave human wisdom ample time to demonstrate that it could answer life. It did not. They were skilled unbelievers. His spirit, it says here in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him when, they, when he saw the city was given to idols. Again, his heart was moved for the people. And these are Gentiles, incidentally. His heart is moved over the Gentiles. And we've, if you've been tracking the story of, of the Jews in those days, you understand it's a big Only the Holy Spirit of God can bring that about. How do you feel when you see or hear others falling in love with lies about God. How does, how does that make you feel as a believer in Jesus Christ? See, now you can put yourself in Paul's place because that's what was happening with him. These people were in love with these f lies out of hell. And he wanted to do something about it. They were spiritually blind and lost, supposing that they owned knowledge and the pursuits of knowledge. And they were wrong. Paul knew this fundamental, to worship anything is to worship nothing. You cannot show deference to the only true God while worshiping fake gods. Paul saw the powers of darkness prevailing amongst the thinkers of academia. And instead of organizing a march on Athens, he goes to work on individuals. That's where he gets his work done, either from the pulpit in the synagogues or when he was face-to-face -face dealing with people uh, one at a time. In Corinth, he will come across this experience again. This, but Corinth was not a university town, not like Athens, of course, not, not that there was not edu uh, formal education going on there also. Well, they were tricked by the devil, 
uh, we come to verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Well, we don't really hear about many converts coming out of that synagogue, Jew or Gentile. There's a comment at the end of this chapter. Well, it's actually... Um, well, I'll get to the verse 34 is actually where, where it is. And this is the, the, how it ends in there. However, some men joined him and believed. And he names among them Diocenes, uh, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So it wasn't a lot of fruit in Athens. He's going to get a lot of fruit in Corinth and a lot of headaches to go with it. Comes with the territory. And so he reasons in the scripture, then he moves out to the public area, outside the synagogue, daily with those, verse 17, who happen to be there. Now this, as I mentioned, in my opinion, is, is basically failed street evangelism in this case. I think in America, successful street evangelism is very difficult. I think a better way is to get to know them, then show them. I think that when you make friends in the, play, in the, mar, in the jobs place or wherever you are, the school, neighborhood... And they see, okay, you're not a troublemaker or the lazy one in the job. They see that you're decent. Then you, you can get their ear. That's been my experience. I know there are a lot of Christians that are into street evangelism. But in almost 40 years of Christianity, I, I, don't, I haven't seen anybody in America come to Christ. Yeah, this guy spoke to me walking down the street and I came to Christ. It might exist. I haven't seen it. And I look to the Bible, so, well, Lord, how do you want to reach lost souls? And I don't see that one as one of the leading methods. Again, some of you may not like it. Don't, like, don't, don't, be, don't be insecure uh, about that. If, if, you, if you think you, it's a success, successful way, then, then do it. It's not forbidding it. But we see it we don't see it again in the New Testament acted out this way. Anyway, verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Well, the Epicureans, their name from Epicurus was their leader, uh, he taught in Athens. And essentially they said, Enjoy life. And their philosophy worked if you had money. It wouldn't work if you were handicapped. It would not work if you were poor. It would not work if you were a slave, which there were many, many slaves in the ancient world, their ancient world. So it was just wrong. And, uh, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, that they, they have these systems that they know don't work, but they do it anyway because it's it's, they're, they're sinning. The Stoics, on the other hand, they said endure life, face the hardships of life. The character in the Star Trek series, Mr. Spock, he was a stoic. Uh, both systems fail. Who, how is God blessed by people who just live to satisfy themselves in an insatiable world? How is God blessed by people who want to just face everything like a man without God? What's in it for your creator? Do you care if he is sovereign and, and so powerful over your soul, wouldn't you be interested in what offends him and what does not? Isn't that logic? How come your philosophers haven't come up with that? Because their own gods were trivial to them. They just gave them some deference and moved on. Now, I, we're running out of time. There's much to say about the Stoics and Epicureans. 
Uh, there's, well, there's much to read. You can, there's plenty of information about them. I just gave it to you in a nutshell. Uh, he says, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Well, the word babbler in the Greek is the seed picker. It's not a compliment. You know, surrounded by their man-made gods who taught them nothing. What did Zeus teach anyone? Mercury, what did they learn from him? I mean, these gods were brawlers. I mean, they were just mean, vindictive, petty, insecure, violent. Uh, What did they learn from any of these things? Well, they just took, you know, human characteristics and applied them to these gods. So you had humans on steroids. And... uh, what they're saying by calling him a seed picker is that he just gathered scraps of knowledge from other people. He didn't have any original thoughts. It was a rude way of welcoming a new newcomer. Uh, they were trying to say, we're smart. Let's see what this dum-dum has to say. Others said, in verse 18, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus, Jesus and the resurrection. Well, some say, well, he's, he's talking religion. That's, they figure, okay, this is not philosophy, this is religion. For the Christian, philosophy is religion. Uh, the right religion, the right philosophy. There's no separation. Christ is life, and that is our approach to life. Uh, the word gods here, incidentally, is translated everywhere else in the New Testament as devils. What's, you know, so what they're saying is, uh, he seems to be speaking some spiritual thing coming from unbelievers. If it was coming from an apostle, it would be devils. Uh, so that's the, the usage of the language, uh, how they used it. Paul went straight to the resurrection with them. And, and though he, ex- <laughs> these again, Gentiles, he's not going to go to Isaiah or, or Ezekiel. He goes, here's the fact. There was a man that was born of a virgin, lived a virtuous life, died in my place on a cross, in your place, was buried and rose again. That's what he preached, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. Now, I'm sure Paul was delighted. Yes, but he's going to find out, these guys don't care. They're they're just, you know, Luke will tell us that. I already read it once, verse Thirty-four. Well, no, I didn't. We're going to get to it in a minute. Verse 20. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what thing, these things mean. Well, I can tell you what Areopagus means. It means the hill of Ares, which was the god of war for the Greeks to the Romans, when the Romans borrow their god or acquire them. Uh, it's Mars. So this is, a, you know, paganism is written all over it. The Latin is Mars, and here in the Greek it's Ares. It's a, this, this hill, the Areopagus, that they, they're taking him up to, overlooks the city of Athens and is within Athens. And this is a rugged plateau. I mean, it's, it's just there's like 10 acres up there, so you, you do have some space to have structures, but it's pretty rough. And... Uh, uh, they wanted, to, you know, they wanted to examine his claims. They were more curious kittens than anything else. Verse 21. Then all the, uh, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And that's Luke saying, you know, bottom line, these guys were fake. 
They really didn't want the gospel. Uh, again, they wanted to put that on their resume. Yeah, I, I like to always hear new things and see how far that would get them. So I'll close with this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because um, maybe Paul had these types in mind. They lived in Corinth too. They were in the church at Corinth. That's why he writes about them. He says, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. How, how much is baked into that? How many people do you come across that are Christians that are arrogant? And that's precisely what he's talking about. People who just have promoted themselves over others instead of just concentrating on the Lord. Well, let's pray. Our Father, the lessons abound. The challenges to do something. It's also important for us to remember that we are fit for this challenge. We can do this. This is something you've given to us. And when we think we can't be used by you, when we think that there's no value in drawing to you, that's the voice of the devil and or the flesh and or the flesh, the devil in the world. But your voice, your voices, that you send us out as sheep among wolves. You send us out to be harmless as doves, wise as serpents. You send us out because you too are provoked by the condition of false worship. And you've not looked the other way. You're dealing with it and you're using us to do much of it. We thank you for this. May we not lose sight of it. And as I'm making this closing prayer, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you've never opened your heart, you have an opportunity right now. If, as you've been listening, or maybe in the days leading up to this, you've sensed God working in your life, well, now what happens? You have to commit. You have to draw your conclusion and act on it. If you'd like to open your heart to Christ and have your sin forgiven and to be part of his solution, then all you need to do is make this prayer. It starts off with an admission of guilt, that you are guilty of breaking the commandments of a pure and holy God who is sinless and yet sensitive enough to offer a solution and is called salvation. If you would like your sins forgiven, if you would like Jesus Christ to be your Savior because there's no one else who can save your soul, if you'd like to come under His authority and have Him be your Lord, then make this prayer. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess my sin. I ask you to forgive me. No one else died for me. No one else is good enough to die for me. And no one else is strong enough to rise again from the dead to demonstrate that my salvation is sure if I receive it. Now, Lord, we commit these things to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.